If you're new here, I wanted to let you know, my name is Jed, I'm the senior pastor, if you're new, and everything that we do in this service, we try to ground in the scriptures. So if something seems old-fashioned, uh, well, it's not, it's, it's, that's because it's really old-fashioned. <laughs> that's because it goes all the way back to the Bible, at least that's what we're trying to do. That second song that we sang today um, was uh, the singing of a psalm. You were, you were singing a psalm today. You were singing Psalm 62. And I thought how appropriate for the topic at hand today and how appropriate for what Jim prayed for. Uh, he prayed for those who occupy the, the highest places of our government. The end of the psalm goes like this. And perhaps next time we sing it, we could have someone uh, rejigger the, the, the song to include this last part of the psalm. Um, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. The psalm doesn't end there. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, O occupiers of the White House, set no vain hopes on robbery, O those of the present regime. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Why? Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work." something the occupants of the White House should consider, and so should we today, so should we. So let's, let's do that now, and let us begin with, with prayer that the Lord would set our hearts aright. Oh God, I do pray now that you would come by your Spirit, that you would work amongst us, that you would cause us to hear your word, cause us to not just be hearers only, but that your word would, as your word says, dwell richly within us. That by your spirit you would do that which only you can do, that you would cause your words to come within us, that you would cause this, this foolish thing that is about to transpire now, that I, but a man, am going to stand here and say words, and people are going to hear these words, and what we are asking of you is resurrection. We are asking you to raise the dead. We are asking you to bring new life now. Only you can do that by your wisdom. So will you please do that now? Will you work amongst us? Will you work amongst us for our great blessing? And by our great blessing, will you be greatly, greatly glorified as the giver of that blessing, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. The Corinthian church's big problem was that they were Christians, they had come out of the grave, but they had brought some of their old life with them, the things that should have stayed in the grave. They were taking the wisdom that they had received from God and they were using it to compete with one another, to one-up one another, to divide with it. But Paul says they must not live this way. Why? Why? because 
God did not serve them, did not save them by wisdom. God did not save, God does not save anyone by wisdom. This is the shocking part of Paul's argument thus far, that the wisdom of men is not the means by how, by how God saves. In fact, it is the wisdom of men. Um, that's how we got into this mess in the first place. That's how I got into this mess in the first place. Um, th- think about this. In the garden, God seemingly made a foolish command, eat of anything except that one tree. What? Strange. Implausible. Just not this tree. But then the dragon, the dragon... Um, appealed to the wisdom of man. He used a plausible, a seemingly reasonable argument. Did God really say? I mean, you're not really going to die, which was half true. Adam and Eve did not die that day, did they? But they did enter into the curse of death by means of their own wisdom. By the wisdom of men, the entire human race was plunged into the curse of death by the wisdom of men. Therefore, God intentionally wraps the gift of the gospel in a package that's that's not wrapped with the wisdom of men, but with implausible foolishness. Implausible foolishness. So today Paul makes one more argument for how this could be true. He wants us to really get this, how this could be true. And the argument that he uses here today is that this came to be true. This is true because you saw it in me, Corinthians. You saw it in my own life. You saw it in how I came to you in three ways, in three ways. So let's look at the passage together. Again, Paul claims that this was God's choice, God's design to proclaim his wisdom to the world through folly, through folly. By folly, Paul means that God chose both a message and a manner of communication that would be seen as implausible, implausible. I I get this from the whole of chapter 1, but especially verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God, through wisdom, it pleased God in His wisdom through the folly of what we preach to save those who would believe. (laughs) Because our wisdom damns us, God in His wisdom chose to use folly to bring the gospel. Whatever wisdom the world has, we, we insanely use it in a spirit of self-trusting, self-exalting rebellion. We, we, are, we, we try to build the Tower of Babel over and over and over again. That's what we do. We try to build our own way to heaven ourselves without God. But existence without God is hell. So it pleased God out of love, Paul says. It pleased God to save people from our sins, not through wisdom, but through folly, through the implausible. We Christians now only see that it is wisdom, chapter 1, verse 30. We see that it's wisdom, we see it from the, from the other side, from the inside out now, because we have been saved. So we see that it is truly wisdom, we see the wisdom of God in the folly. But when, verse 22 of chapter 1, the Jews became offended by the By the crucifixion scene and the the Gentiles called it a total joke. 
That was God's intended design. God will save his people. That is, that is not in question. We must understand that. God is God. He does all that pleases him, and he will do it. He, he will do it. We must understand that. But he will do it in such a way that any boasting about it, verse 30, any boasting about it is pointed at him, at his power. He will not share his glory with another. Because, because if he shares his glory from another, what, what we will do is take that for ourselves. We insanely try to de-God God. If he shares his glory with another, that leads us to, to hell. So it is good for us that he not share his glory with another. So then, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 this morning, Paul makes this point that the reality, that this reality of the folly of God must shape how the Corinthians live and how we live because it shaped how he lived with them. The reality of the folly of God must shape how they live because it shaped how he lived with them and it shaped the very birth of the church there, the very birth of their salvation. So then Paul reminds them, verse 1, he did not proclaim the message of the gospel with lofty speech or with wisdom. So note closely what he says here, no lofty speech, which, you know, is not a problem for us. We're the modern American church. We've turned this whole thing into a giant youth group gathering anyway. So, you know, there, we got rid of lofty speech a long time ago. Okay, um, that's no big deal. But then he goes further than that, and he says he did not even use wisdom. So think about this. When he says no wisdom, he does not mean, I didn't employ certain kinds of wisdom. He doesn't mean, I simplified my intellect. Now, when he says no wisdom, he means, as Charles Spurgeon once probably said, no wisdom. <laughs> he means no wisdom. This, this shaped his life with them. This shaped his approach with them in three ways. Three ways. It shaped his mind, his behavior, and his speech. His mind, his mindset, his, therefore then his behavior, and therefore his speech. Again, in his point in reminding them is this, the very birth of the church came not with wisdom, not, not because I was awesome with you, as, as we will see, but, but through folly, through implausible means, through entirely different categories than what the world values. In fact, the exact opposite categories. So do not follow those categories. Do not divide over those categories. Do not, do not one-up each other over those categories, the categories that the world offers, because God came with an entirely different file folder. And so Paul did the same thing, the same thing in three ways. And by the way, the big point here, um, so what is discipleship? Discipleship is asking, how has God been with me? Okay, got it? Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> That's all Paul was doing with the Corinthians. How has God been with me? How did God approach Paul? And Paul says, okay, I'll, I'll do that with the Corinthians. So first in his mind, verse 2, Paul decided that when he came to Corinth, to this city that just loved big-time speakers who commanded high fees and always wowed their audiences with their, their plausible wisdom, people like Jordan Peterson today. Um, he decided to do the exact opposite 
the exact opposite. Instead of knowing about Jungian psychology and lobsters and 12 rules for life, he decided that he would know nothing, nothing except the one thing that the Jordan Petersons of the world do not know. The one thing that Jordan Peterson cannot give you is that simple person and event, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Go ahead, listen to Jordan Peterson. That's, that's not a problem. But just know, he cannot give you the most important thing. He cannot give you what he himself does not have yet. Yet. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So remember, remember here that Christ is not Jesus' last name. The word Christ means anointed one or Messiah, the one who saves mankind. Jesus is the one that actually saves us. We need to be saved. We need to be delivered. We do not need new tips for life. We do not need more tactics for getting girls. We, we do not need uh, 12 tips for, for living life better. Th those are all good things. Very, there's a lot of wisdom there. But what we need at, at the base, what we will be rejoicing for 10,000 years from now, is that somebody came along in the, while I was still dead in my trespasses and sins and gave me resurrection life, unbreakable, un, unending life. So when it, when it says that Jesus is the Christ, what it is simply saying is that Jesus is the one who gives this. That's it. That's what it's saying. Jesus the Christ, the one who saves mankind. But here Paul mentions Jesus first. Sometimes he, if you notice, sometimes Paul says Christ Jesus, sometimes he says Jesus Christ, and that's always intentional. So here he mentions Jesus first as a way to emphasize that he's Jesus God come as a humble man, a construction tradesman's son from Galilee. And, and then he was crucified. Um, this reminds us that Paul here is only following his Lord, his Lord who was the king who reigned implausibly from a Roman cross. How does that work? How do you reign from a cross? who preached to crowds of prostitutes, who built his entire kingdom on the shoulders of illiterate fishermen, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and then was raised from the dead three days later, the foolishness of God. And so secondly, in his affect, in his behavior, Paul came, in, instead of wearing pinstripe suits and cutting a striking, confident, man-of-the-world figure, verse 3, it says that he was with them in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul let them see who he was. He did not come for applause. He came as one who was stoned, persecuted, shipwrecked, slandered, starved, and exposed. His whole affect, his, his shtick, if you could call it that, was weakness. Not a put-on, though, actual weakness, which he chose. He chose to come in this, in this manner. This is called meekness. Meekness is power under the control of its possessor employed for the sake of others. Power 
under the control of its possessor, employed for the sake of others. Meekness is power employed in self-sacrificing love. Paul came this way, as we will see, for them, for the Corinthians. Paul was not a weak man. He was, in fact, the second most masterful person to ever live, besides John the Baptist. And he was, he was the epitome of a masterful. Paul could make a leather tent, that was his profession, or he could tell you the theological arguments of Isaiah before his first cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, Paul traveled the world and had friends in high places and the lowest places. The other 11 apostles took care of the Jews. Paul had the Gentiles. This was a masterful man, a real man, who could be stoned and left for dead and get up and walk to the next town and keep preaching. Paul was a man, a stud. <laughs> The kind of man every man should aspire to be. Paul could have come to the Corinthians, therefore, with a blazing, decisive masculinity. That is not the question. Again, Paul was the definition of masterful masculinity, and in fact, he, he probably would have enjoyed coming to them and slicing the, the teachers and preachers of that town up and down six ways to Sunday. He would have enjoyed it. But what they needed... What, what they needed was to see the foolishness of God. And so that compelled him. Love compelled him to come knowing nothing except one foolish thing, delivered in a foolish manner in weakness and in trembling. Therefore, verse 4, thirdly, his speech and his method, his message, were not implausible words, it says, of wisdom. I've been using this word a little bit. The word plausible means to sound reasonable or probable. Again, let that sink in and consider how different this is from how modern American Christians approach church and evangelism. We don't share the gospel until we feel like we've cooked up enough words that will sound plausible to the other person. And Paul, on the other hand, did the opposite. He chose instead to, to simply say the words that he knew would be implausible, and then he left it at that. Why? To leave room for something else, to let someone else speak. The power of God demonstrated in the Spirit. The power of God demonstrated in the Spirit. So the implication here is that Paul could have it one way or the other, but not both. One way or the other, but he could have, A, the power of human wisdom operating, or he could have B, the power of God in the Spirit, but not both. One or the other. God will not share his glory. So he chose B. He chose B, verse 5, for the sake of the Corinthians and for the sake of God's glory. So do you, do you see how Paul is simply operating by the great commandment here? to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is simply operating here with a love for God's glory and a love for his neighbor, in this case, the Corinthians. He's operating with love shaped by the gospel, not the American gospel, but the only gospel that's actually there, the foolishness of God in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
The reason why, for for the Corinthians, the reason why he did this, the reason why he came this way is so that, verse 5, it says here that their faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God who raises the dead. And in this way, God would be glorified because faith glorifies whatever it rests upon. Faith glorifies the power of of whatever it rests upon. To put this another way, the reason why Paul came this way is because he wanted them to actually be saved. He wanted them to actually be saved. Salvation is found by faith alone in the power of God alone brought in Christ alone. And there is salvation found nowhere else. To put this in the negative, to put this in the negative, if your faith is in anything else, you are not a Christian. You are not saved. I, I, don't, I don't enjoy saying this, but it's true. By the way, I'm, I'm not talking, though, about the strength of your faith. I'm not talking about your faith as as it wanders and how how often it wanders. Mine too. I'm not not talking about that. I'm talking about when your faith does wander, regardless of how often it wanders, I'm asking you, where does it wander from? (laughs) What is the place that it wanders from? That's what's most important. If your faith is in the prayer you once prayed in VBS, then you are not a Christian if your faith rests on your performance, that you are a better Christian than most, then you are not a Christian. If your faith rests on your knowledge of theology and that your theology is more pure than the next guy because you follow MacArthur or Piper or Carson or Wilson, then you are not a Christian. If your faith rests on the fact that you don't sleep around like all the really bad kids in high school, You might get citizenship awards, but you're still destined for hell. If your faith rests on what church you belong to and the purity of its doctrine, then you are not a Christian. If your faith rests on that time you got baptized, then you are not a Christian. If it rests there, if, if that is the central place that when you wander, you wander from. But if your faith rests on Jesus Christ and Him crucified, you can get all kinds of things wrong and you are saved, period. If your faith rests on Jesus Christ and Him crucified, you you can have faith that's as weak as wet tissue paper and your salvation is as strong and secure as the very rocks underneath the earth that hold up the greatest mountains. Because it rests on the only one who can possibly hold up what you need, what you desire, what you hope for. Forgiveness of all of your sins and hope of life eternal. Only one who has been crucified in your place for your sins and who has been risen from the dead three days later can hold that weight. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And he's given himself to you. Rest your faith on him. On this foolish, foolish message. I've shared this story before, but it bears repeating. Um, 
When I was a kid, we lived on a lake that would freeze in the winter. And as it froze, it would crack underneath. If you've been to the Midwest and frozen lakes, you've, you've seen this phenomenon. And that, that, that cracking, it would refreeze, and then it would groan. The lake would groan. And it would, I was, as a little kid, it would scare me, you know, because it just sounded really spooky. Um, and I didn't want to go out on the ice. But one day, my parents proclaimed a message to me. The message they proclaimed to me was, the ice will hold you. Come out. So I walked out on the ice. It probably took me like 10 minutes <laughs> to gingerly walk out on the ice. And guess what? I did not go through. I did not get wet. What held me there? What, what held me? What kept me from getting wet? Was it the power of my parents' words to me? Was it the power of their wisdom that held me there? Or was it the power of my faith? Was it the power of my faith that kept me from getting wet? No. It was the strength of the ice beneath me, the strength of the object of my faith. It was the power of the ice that held me there, the thing that their message was about. It seemed so foolish to me at first. Why would I walk out on ice and just go through? What are you trying to drown me? <laughs> you know, what are you doing out there? Come back. You know, it seems so foolish at first. But when I obeyed the message, oh, then I saw the wisdom of it and the foolish message. Oh, and it's so much fun to skate around on the ice and have fun and play hockey. And oh, it was delightful. But first I had to obey the message, the foolish, foolish message. I've said it many times before, and it bears repeating. What matters is not the strength of your, of your faith, but the strength of the object of your faith. What matters is not the power of your faith, but the power of whatever your faith rests upon. And it is only, only the foolishness of God that can bear the weight of what you need and what you desire. Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead for you. You, you want that and you need that. And it is not found, it's not found in your favorite preacher. It's not found in any man except the man Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen from the dead. So a question, what does your faith rest upon? What is it? I, I don't ask you this to nail you to the wall. I just, I ask you because I want you to be saved. That's all. <laughs> Whether I know you or not here today. In love, I just I ask you, what does what your faith rest upon? May it rest on Christ. May it rest on Christ. Because our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is not in the awesomeness of our theology or the rightness of my theological team versus yours. Francis Schaeffer once wisely said that the three most important days in the life of a Christian are the day that Christ was crucified the day that he returns, and today. Am I walking in faith on that day and hope of that day today? That's what Christianity looks like. Not faith in my faith, not, not faith in another day when I, when I trusted in Christ, but am I trusting today? To, to put this another way, um, uh, the, what, what will you say? What will you say if Jesus says, why should I let you into my heaven? And the answer is not that I believed. That's not the answer. It's not that I prayed a prayer. 
That's not Christianity. That's called decisionism. The answer is that Christ died for me, was risen for me, and returned for me. I'm the object of that sentence, not the subject of the sentence. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. All I contributed to the equation was a spiritual corpse. He raised me from the dead. He gave me life. He died. He, he died so that I could live. He rose that I might stand before God righteous and approved forever and ever. So I, I simply ask, very, very simple question, can you say that with me? I don't say it perfectly. My faith wanders. I'm not asking, can you say this perfectly? I'm just saying, can you say this with me in your soul? I, I, I pray, I, I trust that you would. Christ died for you so that you could be forgiven of all of your sins, and he was risen so that you could stand before God pure and accepted and holy and received and welcomed forever. <laughs> There's the foolishness of God. Take it. Believe. Because it's not until we realize this that we can finally then follow Paul's example as he follows Christ. He's, Paul's just following Christ here. Christ, the, the, the foolishness of God, again, who, who would reign as king from a cross. Who would, who would die, who would die for us. So, what does the world need? The world does not need my wisdom, nor yours. The world does not need sugarcoating. The world also doesn't need idiots and jerks. <laughs> There's enough of that already. Um, the world simply needs the events of Christ proclaimed to them, told to them. If, uh, I, okay, I'm, I'm not going to say who because I want it's her story to tell, but I... I a perfect example of this, we, in our membership meeting recently, we were all going around and sharing testimonies. T talk about the foolishness of God. Dear sister was talking about how she, there was a, a vacuum store, a, va a vacuum salesman who was a Christian and who wanted to use his shop to, to save people. And she was out one night with a friend walked by the vacuum store. After he closed, he would invite Christians in. They would have Bible studies and they would tell people about Jesus. Vacuum salesman. So this dear sister walks by. Lady comes out and says, Jesus died for you. You need to, you need to trust him. You need to become a Christian. <laughs> and this dear sister said, okay. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was it. That's all she needed. She became a Christian. <laughs> The world, the world does not need our sugarcoating. The, what the world needs is people who have sufficient meekness to, to harness the, the great power that God has put inside of us and to harness in love, harness it in love for our neighbors and to walk with faith, to, to believe that the greatness of the day of small beginnings, that the greatness of a moment where someone might just proclaim the foolishness of God to another and the other might just say, okay. Okay. 
I, I use that phrase, the day of the greatness of the day of small beginnings, because it seems here that Paul has in his mind in this section a very famous passage from Zechariah chapter 4, and it's, it's yet another example of why it's safe to assume in nearly every verse of the New Testament that that writer probably has an Old Testament verse in mind. Um, but in this prophecy from Zechariah, it's about the rebuilding of the temple after the Jewish people had returned from exile in Babylon, and they were just starting over from nothing. And they're asking, how will it be rebuilt with so small a number and so weak of a people? And God replies in chapter 4, verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the, the leader of the exiles, not by the returned exiles, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, verse 9, Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for whoever has despised the day of small beginnings shall rejoice. God loves, God loves to hide his awesome resurrection power in foolish, foolish packages like vacuum salesmen, like me, like you. No offense, like you. It's not until we realize that, that our own story began this way, not by my might, not, not by man's power, not by man's wisdom, but by the power of the Spirit that the day of small beginnings, when we start to see them differently, we see them as, as moments of eternal opportunity. Redounding to the glory of God forever and ever. Until you see your story like that, only then, when you see your story like that, can you then follow in Paul's footsteps like Christ. This reality has affected um, my own ministry in two ways. First, um, over the years, I myself have become more straightforward, less adorned in my preaching. I'm, I'm a work in progress. I'm always seeking to grow and seeking to improve. But in another sense, I started out as a better preacher. My father once came to hear me preach in college, and another preacher from the town said that he always came when I was up. My dad really liked this. He was very proud of it, which sounds great to be able to wax eloquently, you know, like Max Lucado. But I came to realize what profits a man if he gains the whole world as an audience and loses all their souls. What good is that? Besides, I'll answer for it one day. So I, I myself am seeking to apply this passage by, to, to give you the truth. Maybe sometimes it's on the rocks, maybe it's sometimes straight up. But, but this is why I, I always secondly try to center what I say to you on the gospel itself. However imperfectly, Sunday to Sunday, but that's why I seek to preach the gospel to you, Christians, every Sunday, in some way, shape, or form. To, and, this, and this leaves room for God. So, so to put this another way, to use a baseball metaphor, I seek to hit singles, I seek to simply get on base, so that the power of God can clean the bases. Does that make sense? <laughs> Even if you don't know baseball, you probably get it. <laughs> um, so that the power of the Spirit's work might be glorified among us. Our job is to hit singles and maybe draw a walk and get on base. God does the heavy lifting. So, so whatever power I have to preach, God has called me to surrender that power in the meek service of one thing, and He's called you too in the same way 
to serve one thing, Christ and him crucified, an offense to the Jews, a joke to everybody else, but to you and people that he has called in this community, oh, righteousness, sanctification, eternal life forever and ever. So, okay, a few questions in closing. How do you know that your faith rests upon Christ? How do you know? Well, read the book of 1 John. 1 John is, is basically answering that question. So I, but in lieu of just reading to you 1 John, here's, here's three other thoughts that are related. First, number one, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, sent to die for you and to be raised for you? Do, do you believe that? If so, that's good. Believe that. <laughs> good. Very good. Secondly, then, do you pray to him in his name? Do you pray to him in his name? To pray to him in Jesus' name means it, it is the first and most basic act of faith upon him. For our hearing in the throne room of God to, to, to pray in Jesus' name, it could be an empty rote thing or it could be the most faith-filled thing you do. Pray to him in Jesus' name name by the power of his resurrection. Our prayers, or lack thereof, tell us a lot about where our faith really rests. And thirdly, do you then relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ with an approach, with an attitude that is shaped by the foolishness of God? Do you approach others in judgment and critique, evaluating them for their theological and doctrinal purity? Or do you approach them in meekness, doing all you can to unite with them around the foot of the cross? Do you, do you see that we are already united with each other around Him, around this one central main thing? And so you do, do you seek to divide around that, or do you seek to unite others with you around the foot of the cross? Because at the foot of the cross, no one can be proud at the foot of the cross, it's utterly impossible to be anything but humbled by what you see before you. That is not to say that doctrine is unimportant. No, be fully convinced in your own mind. It's what you do with it, that's the question. It's what you do with it. Do you separate and divide, or do you seek to unite and bond and partner together in true koinonia with others? Brothers and sisters, we have been given the greatest gift, the gift of faith and the gift, therefore, of life through that faith, the gift of forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ crucified for you. So I implore you, trust Him. Trust Him and then proclaim Him. Proclaim Him plainly. Proclaim Him straightforwardly to all who would hear. For God still has many that He has called in this city. I'm convinced of it. And uh, then grab your popcorn. <laughs> grab your popcorn and watch him hit. Watch, watch the curveballs and the sliders that he hits into the stands. Oh, it is, this, it is so fun. <laughs> Such a trite word, but it is so fun to watch the power of God break down strongholds and bring people to himself. Oh, it is so pleasurable. It's so fun. To watch that power work. So would you, would you speak in faith and hope 
that he will bring them home and us home. So let me, let me pray for that now. Our God and our Savior, our Father, I ask you, will you please grant faith to whoever needs it here? Pray that you would grant faith. Pray that you'd grant us to repent. Those of us who do believe, and yet we are so prone to wander, so prone to put our faith in other things, will you grant us repentance, strengthen our faith, grant us simplicity and sincerity of heart, that we might speak the gospel with that simplicity and sincerity, and then grant us to sit back and joyfully, with great anticipation, wait for you to work. And lastly, I simply want to say, praise your name. Thank you for your gift of grace to us. Praise your name. It is in your name, Lord Jesus, and the power of your resurrection that we pray. Amen. If you would like to talk with me now or sometime in the future when you're ready, when you're ready to, if you have not trusted in Jesus, to place your faith in Jesus and you'd like someone to talk to, uh, you know where to find me. <laughs> My, our number's on the website and uh, I'm, I'm available to you. So are our elders. And if there's anything else that's provoked a conversation or a thought in your mind today and you'd like to talk, let's talk. Let's talk.